I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take a big story each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney. I'm an urban planner at Multi Studio in Kansas City. And today I am joined by Daniel Harrigus, senior editor and founding member for the Strong Towns organization. Welcome back, Daniel. You're on uh, two times in a row, which I think is a record. I, I think it is too, and I'm happy to be here again. <laughs> yeah, I'm really, really glad to have you. I got a text from our friend Kevin Klinkenberg earlier today saying that our last episode was his favorite episode of Upzone. So I definitely appreciate you coming on, and I, I always appreciate the back and forth that we have beforehand, kind of talking about these subjects and and sharing additional resources and everything. So. This topic this week is going to be a really fun one to cover because I feel like we talk about housing a lot on this show, but this this one I think is maybe perhaps a realistic approach to some of the housing issues that we often talk about. The article was published in Bloomberg City Lab by Kristen Caps, and it is entitled The Future of Factory Built, Built Homes Hits the National Mall. So recently, the National Mall in Washington, D.C. hosted the Innovative Housing Showcase, which is a three-day festival that highlights new formats and frontiers for factories that make housing. It featured public tours of many modest yet very normal-looking manufactured houses. In response to the housing crisis, the White House is looking to expand the number of backyard flats, modular homes, and single-family housing units by reintroducing manufactured houses back into American communities. The event at the mall had a very straightforward message saying that because manufactured homes can be built at scale and assembled quickly on a site, they represent a real opportunity for saving costs of materials and labor. So companies that manufacture homes say that their factories can satisfy the market for new housing and can preserve existing affordable housing options alike. One company that was uh, quoted in the article said that a 450-square-foot manufactured house can be built for as little as $100,000, which could be a mortgage of under $1,000 a month. Unfortunately, there are still a lot of barriers to implementing this approach on a national scale. Modern building codes favor stick-built homes. There are many local zoning ordinances that kind of confuse what manufactured housing is and sometimes outright don't allow them. And financing rules can make it difficult for modular housing for buyers to uh, actually get a mortgage on them, and it limits the industry's ability to grow. So ingrained into all these barriers are really the stigma around what manufactured housing is and what, what it might be for communities. To me, this article is really aligned with Strong Towns because what a lot of what you guys talk about at Strong Towns is this concept as concepts that are really a reintroduction of things that were once normal. It makes me think of the Sears kit homes, which 
70,000 Sears kit homes were built all around the country. Many of them are in Kansas City. And you wouldn't even know that they are are kit homes, that they were pre-manufactured at all. The other thing that I think is interesting about them is at the time they were assembled by the original homeowners and are beloved today and high quality homes. And that's not really something that I think most people associate with the idea of manufactured housing today. And, And this industry represents a real opportunity to kind of shift what that perspective is. You know, it's funny. I think this is something on which my thinking has evolved as I've learned a little bit more. Um, there was a time when my my knee-jerk reaction to a discussion of um, manufactured housing is the future of, of housing and it's going to improve affordability and we're going to deploy these all over the country. My reaction would have been really negative on like a gut level because I think on a gut level, I kind of grew up with this distaste for anything that was cookie cutter and homogenous. And, you know, it's part of the whole urbanism thing, right? Like that's part of the problem with the suburban experiment is we just like take this template and then we deploy it from the top down everywhere in a thoughtless way. And it was actually learning about the history of craftsman catalog homes that, that started to evolve my thinking on that, about the ways in which having a template or having certain labor-saving devices can actually be a democratizing force in housing in that it actually allows people working at a more incremental scale to do it. The part that's interesting to me as someone who thinks about planning and land use and not so much about construction and materials and, and the building side of things, you know, I think that's important. It's not my, my background or my expertise. So the thing that's interesting to me is how does this reshape the American landscape if it catches on big? I'm optimistic about the ways in which it could. I think that we sorely need ways right now of bringing construction costs down for housing. It is really a crippling problem. I mean, there are a lot there are a lot of problems that intersect that have created a housing affordability crisis. There's land use and zoning restrictions, there's financing issues. There there are a whole lot of problems. There are labor shortages in the construction industry, but there um a lot of it is the cost of building a new home which has gone up and up and up. And construction kind of infamously is one of those industries where there haven't been big labor productivity gains over time. You know, the cost of producing other kinds of things like, um, you know, consumer technologies, the cost of producing a television in real terms has gone down and down and down over decades. There are a lot of things like that. Construction just has stubbornly been resistant to that. I'm not going to go into an economics lecture that frankly might be a little bit out of my own depth here, but there's a whole phenomenon that economists have studied called cost disease, where even if you're not seeing productivity gains, which is the case in construction, we still largely build homes the way we built them decades ago. But because wages are rising in other industries, other sectors of the economy, and wages are rising in the economy as a whole, they naturally have to rise in construction as well. I mean, people need to be employable. They need to, you need to, you need to pay a prevailing wage to get people to work in that industry. So we're now at this place where you know, it's not, I, this is not an argument against anyone earning a living wage, but construction labor costs have gone up and up and up, and we're not seeing productivity gains to match it. They, they haven't gone up and up and up because it's cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to build a house. We're kind of stuck in this rut. And so I think manufactured housing, you know, it's not going to completely replace other forms of construction, but there are ways in which 
it's incredibly promising to to reshape the American housing landscape. And um, the biggest one that's on my mind is accessory dwelling units. That's sort of a hobby horse of mine anyway. You know, I've lived in three backyard ADUs in my life, and they was they were fantastic experiences. And I'm um, so I'm a big evangelist for ADUs, and anyone who's read me at Strong Towns knows that. Um, but there are a lot of logistical barriers to to seeing ADUs scale up as a housing solution. Just in terms of land use, like they're incredibly low hanging fruit. It's like we got all these. It's kind of streetcar suburb ranging toward like really outer suburban style neighborhoods in America that have big yards that are underused and a homeowner who's feeling a, a squeeze in terms of cost of living and would love to either have the, the rental income from an ADU or would love to have, you know, a place to put their aging parents or something like that. And the biggest obstacle is, well, to put an ADU on your, on your lot, even if you're the owner occupant, you live right there, you kind of have to be a developer. And most people aren't up to the task of being a real estate developer and managing a construction project. And we're starting to see as there's this wave of legalization of ADUs around the country right now, we're starting to see innovations that promise to change that. And one of them, some of them are on the the logistical side, the financing and the permitting. And there are kind of one-stop shop companies popping up in places like Portland where you know, they will be your developer and for a fee, they will like manage and build the whole process, you know, for you. Um, But the construction cost side is the other side of that ledger. And I think the, maybe the perfect use case for modern manufactured housing that's of a much higher quality than what manufactured housing might've connoted decades ago. The perfect use case is sort of a plug and play model. That's maybe the modern analog of the Sears craftsman catalog where a homeowner can can put a manufactured accessory dwelling unit in their backyard and have a tenant or have a family member living there and add to the housing stock. And we can do that at scale throughout our existing neighborhoods and really thicken them up. And like that, that excites me. Just that prospect gets me going. Yeah. I, I too am somebody who has a mild obsession with accessory dwelling units. <laughs> um, and I'm just really interested in accessory dwelling units pre-manufactured accessory dwelling units specifically as a viable, more affordable option. I think in in places where certainly land is scarce, it's, you know, a a very wonderful opportunity to thicken up neighborhoods and provide more housing units in those neighborhoods. You know, in places like the Midwest where land is a bit more abundant, you kind of have a little bit of a different dynamic there. Although I think as as people become more familiar with this concept as being an option to them and as things as zoning regulations are kind of revised to allow these things to happen, I, I think that the the industry around creating pre-manufactured accessory dwelling units will only continue to grow. I think there's a lot of nuance to how these things are done and and what the price point ultimately results in. You mentioned companies that are, you know, they're acting as basically the uh, middleman between the homeowner and the contractor. And I've, I've talked to some people who have companies like that. And I think that is something that's really key because contractors for such small projects really don't want to be, um, you know, dealing directly with the homeowner, I've learned. they Having somebody kind of to manage the project 
who does this for a living is, is very important <laughs> to contractors um, because they may be working on some larger projects and this is something that's uh, smaller and, and, you know, for, for everybody at the lack of scale can be quite difficult. Um, and, and the other question is kind of how you deal with the cost of utilities on a site, you know, with accessory dwelling units, it can add significant cost to the, the overall cost of building an accessory dwelling unit if um, you're, you're metering things separately and if you're kind of separating things out, if you can essentially attach it to the existing house, um, you know, even, even putting it in a garage or some structure that's existing, I think that's where you can get the most cost savings. But regardless, I, I'm excited about the accessory dwelling unit industry as a whole because I think that, you know, the things that are happening in that industry could eventually uh, apply to infill housing, to cottage court housing arrangements, to a lot of different housing options that people would really like to see. And I, I like that you kind of bring up that that catalog approach because, you know, I could see having a catalog of lots of different pre-manufactured housing types, you know, potentially from lots of different companies. Many of those companies could be local and you could use that as a pattern book. And I, I would even go as far to say that I could see a neighborhood adopting a pattern book like that as an alternative to their zoning. Um, I think having some kind of approach that you know, defines these these designs that that people want to see in their neighborhoods and enables those those to be applied in a way that is really straightforward could be something that helps to bring those costs down. I do feel like often in the housing space, there's this argument that if we just deregulate everything, then we would just get all of the outcomes, the, all the housing that everybody wants. But I think that it's not about totally just deregulating everything, but more about having a regulatory framework that is very simple and that that it creates rules for things that actually matter, like the goal of designing enduring neighborhoods that have a variety of housing options and then cuts out kind of all the fat that's like creating barriers and unreasonable costs and lack of expectations to the process of building a home. Because those are all the things that will stifle an industry and keep things from actually happening. I got a question for you, because you're actually working as a planner and I know planners and granted you're, you're a bit of an unorthodox one in a good way, but planners are very good at the what if and the the identifying the potential pitfalls. So I want to know, you know, we've talked, we've talked pretty optimistically about how this technology could reshape the housing landscape. Now I want to hear from you, like, what do you see as the like things we got to worry about or things that um, the local government really ought to concern itself with um, that might be specific to, you know, a, a mass scaling up of the impact of manufactured housing technology on our cities? Like, what worries you? So that's that's a good question. And as somebody, you know, we deal with zoning a lot. And I feel like the process of uh, working in the world of zoning is always about kind of trying to think through unanticipated consequences to the extent possible. When it comes to neighborhoods and creating a regulatory framework for neighborhoods, I, 
I think it's really about creating simple rules that that create standards around things that matter and focusing on the urban design of neighborhoods, having human scale frontages, having uh, slow tree lined streets with sidewalks that people uh, can treat as the public realm and not just a roadway for moving traffic. Um, you know, having having standards that really create a good framework for how subdivisions are laid out. I, I feel like that's something people often talk about just zoning districts, but subdivision standards are really where you establish a lot and block layout. And I, I think that, and it's something that's not often changed. And the zoning district is what, what impacts really lot size, lot width, access patterns. And so making sure those two things work together in a way that uh, results in kind of the urban design patterns that you want to see, you know, whether your house is custom designed or manufactured, if you have some very simple and straightforward guidelines and standards, then, you know, you can avoid the snout house configurations and, you know, the things that you really don't want to see um, by just having simple rules. And I also think it's important for, you know, we run out, we run into this a lot where cities don't really have a distinction between uh, mobile homes versus manufactured housing versus RVs. And that's something that I think it's, it's important to define that clearly and have distinctions between what those things are. Because, you know, manufactured houses, you can make a case that those really shouldn't be treated like any other type of house that is not put on a foundation. I mean, it's, it's not really that different other than the fact that the components are, are pre prefabricated and, you know, built quicker on the site. Um, And some building code questions might come up, but I think, (laughs) you know, I think that there are, from a zoning perspective, there are some, definitions that need to be reformed and clarified. But but in terms of, you know, what could the outcomes be, uh, that's kind of always the fear that, yeah, you know, someone might build something that is super ugly, <laughs> you know, and when you're in a neighborhood, you know, you never want anything to be built. You know, I'd hate if my neighbor built something super ugly. And of course, that's um, subjective. But I think in terms of what is the government's role in managing whether something is subjectively ugly or not, I think that's kind of always, that's always the question is, is what's really, what is really their role in managing the the design of everything that comes forward. And I, I think that the industry that is starting to put out designs for accessory dwelling units and prefabricated houses are are actually demonstrating that you can get really good design and lovely houses out of uh, a prefabricated model. And so I, I would be more worried about kind of the, the snout house <laughs> configurations. And that's really just a matter of limiting, limiting the access patterns on a lot basis and uh, limiting the amount of, you know, driveway and garage frontage. But that's a pretty simple rule that that you can apply to a zoning code without adding a a ton of additional process or undue burden. Yeah. You talked about pattern books earlier and like that, I'd like to think there's actually kind of potential here where, you know, I think 
historically, to the extent that local government involved itself in land use, it was much more likely to be those form-based considerations. You know, like historically towns would have like a town architect and whatever was built would go through the town architect. And that's how you'd get this kind of uniform look. And now we've reached this point where planning is sort of, planning is sort of confused about its role in a lot of ways. Uh But um, (laughs) if prefab becomes a big thing with something like ADUs, it's a chance for local government to sort of insert itself and say, okay, we want to like actually work, you know, work with you on the pattern book and we want to like approve this and we want to make it like, and there are cities that have done this. There are cities that have sort of pre-approved ADU designs. I I think I've heard that Santa Cruz, California had an effort like this where um, you can kind of like, you know, your, your zoning approval process is expedited if you use one of these pre-approved designs. And this wasn't for manufactured. This was for conventionally built ADUs. But to kind of get back to, to that model of, well, what are the things that matter? The things that matter are how does it affect the public realm? How do buildings interface with the street? You know, we, we have a bad history, sort of there's a persistent tendency in American urban planning to use, to regulate things through zoning or through land use regulations where like the thing we're trying to, the thing we're actually regulating is a proxy for something else that we don't want to say we're regulating. And that something else very often has to do with social class. So um, like to put it bluntly, a lot of the times when you see things about mobile homes or manufactured homes pop up in the zoning code, it has less to do with sort of concrete impacts on the public realm that maybe ought to be a concern of the the police power. Police power is a bit like if if you haven't studied land use law, that I got a little wonky there with that term. But the <laughs> the the power of local government to regulate land regulate land use or regulate the use of private property to benefit the public welfare is essentially what I mean by that. Um, that's that's the legal basis of zoning is. We can regulate things where there is a public health or safety interest um, or, you know, an interest of sort of basic public welfare. And there's a whole history of case law as to like where that line is. But we tend to use zoning in sort of a stealth way for exclusionary purposes or for purposes that have much more to do with social class and people's comfort level with the idea of who's going to be living in their neighborhood. And so there's all this stigma around manufactured housing that has to do with perceptions of usually mobile homes and who lives in them and what kind of impact that brings to the neighborhood. The more we can get away from that and regulate the things that we actually ought to be regulating because they actually have a clear direct connection to the public welfare, to health and safety. Yeah. Personally, I think it's going to take certain places to demonstrate that this is not something to that you need to be afraid of. I just think of my own city and it's, you know, 320 square miles. It has all these different zoning categories. If you were to go through and just do a broad sweep on the zoning code, I'm pretty sure people would come completely unglued. Um, because, <laughs> you know, because you have all of these different types of neighborhoods, class structures, people's tolerance for change is different in different places. Um, And I think, you know, whether you like it or not, that is the reality politically. And so, you know, I, I would love to see a neighborhood that is open to this kind of idea to basically pilot it and say, hey, you know, in lieu of our typical zoning, we are going to adopt 
Maybe it's an overlay that takes a pattern book approach and says, here's a bunch of prefab models that, that we'd like to see. And maybe they could be customized in terms of the porch front edge and the window types and things like that. Um, because, you know, when you look at some of the streetcar suburbs in my city and many cities, a lot of the actual floor plans of the houses are not that different. Sometimes they're reversed, you know, and, and changed slightly. But the thing that's really different about the houses are the, the front porches, some of the materials. There's not that much variation, even though it, it seems like there's a lot of variation when you're just walking along the street. And so I think if you could have a, a streamlined process like that, that could still produce a lot of creativity and variation and people could make it their own when it's when it's built they could paint it what they want to paint it they could put in a creative door they could do their landscaping you know all the things that people have homes want to do um and and it's you know truly a more affordable uh option for first-time home buyers i would like to see something like that piloted in a place to demonstrate that this is not something that we need to be afraid of and that we could apply it in a, a really a really great way that that produces uh, more benefits than the negatives. I do think that that would help to to kind of change the perspectives around uh, this type of housing. But, you know, I think if a city were to just try it in one big swoop, especially a city like mine where it's such a big geography, I just think that's that's a huge political challenge. Now, I know the the White House is very interested in kind of opening up this industry and creating incentives at the federal and state levels tied to funding, kind of doing a, a carrot and stick approach to having some of these re- reforms introduced to, into communities to allow these sorts of things to happen. I'm curious to see what will kind of come out of that. I'd, I'd like to see this demonstrated somewhere. I would too. Um, I think I think it's something I'd like to see cities get out ahead of. Um, because what it really is, and we've, we've sort of expressed this already in this conversation, this is not a brand new thing. And it's not um, a top-down, everything the same everywhere at once, suburban experiment kind of innovation. We're actually talking about getting back to what was a more, much more historical traditional way of building cities, which was you had a template and the bar to entry to participate in creating housing by copying that template was pretty low. Um, There's a great meme that goes around periodically. I see it pop up again and again on Twitter and it's like, I hate all the soulless cookie cutter housing. And then it's a picture of like a row of San Francisco Victorians. And each one has a different paint color and different trim and a different door. But like, they are built on a template. That's what we did. That was how we built all of the beloved traditional like Victorian streetcar suburb, that, that whole era, that was how we built America's walkable neighborhoods. Um, and having a template can be a really democratizing force. I think if we don't approach it that way, and if cities don't approach it as how can we make this an accessible thing for incremental developers, then the same technology, what it's going to be is an unhealthy kind of top-down homogenizing force. It's we're not going to see it deployed throughout cities in an incremental kind of bubbling up way. What we're going to see is it's going to be the latest tool of big production home builders to drive costs down, down, down to rock bottom. Um, and probably in ways that aren't going to lead to really resilient or appealing or enduring places. Um, 
you know, it's going to be the new, the new subdivision on the edge, except it's going to be manufactured homes. Um, because they can do it more cheaply that way, and they're already doing it as a planned unit development, where all of the, um, you know, where it's a negotiated agreement with the city, and the, the big home builders have a lot of clout, and they tend to get what they want. So, I mean, that's how the Snout House subdivision comes to be, and there are a lot of really kind of ugly scenarios that I can envision with this, where the the technology just becomes another tool of those centralized forces, but I ultimately don't blame it on the technology. I think if we can make building cheaper, that is a thing that we desperately need right now. And the role of cities and zoning in that is to protect the public interest and protect the integrity of the public realm. Yes. I, and I, I think it's important how you frame it as a tool and it's all about how that tool is being leveraged and, you know, understandably humans have a very bad um, record of leveraging new tools in a way that is, uh, you know, always good. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think there's definitely going to be growing pains and, you know, the accessory dwelling unit industry in a lot of places, it is kind of just being done by, um, you know, homeowners in nice areas that want to spend a lot of money on a secondary dwelling or an office and it is kind of in that stage. My hope is that the industry will eventually be able to get these costs further and further down and kind of figure out how to innovate in those ways. What I what I am happy about is that the industry is already demonstrating that you can build beautiful prefabricated little houses. When I was at CNU, somebody in some presentation I can't remember which one, but they they brought up a website called briartowncottages.com where they have a bunch of basically open source uh, designs and plans that you can request and they will just send to you. And, you know, AD, I think it's ATL, ADU, which is a company run by Adam Wall from uh, what was formerly Chromebook Wall out of Atlanta. They have a company with lots of open, you know, they have open source plans and they're lovely looking houses and their accessory dwelling units. So I, I feel like there's no shortage of uh, companies that have really nice looking examples of these types of buildings. And that's what I think is just very encouraging to me. And it, it makes me excited that we're not just going to get a bunch of snout houses <laughs> because that, that is the thing that I think people would be very disappointed to see in their neighborhoods. Yeah. My, my dream is that like, I mean, right now I think you hit the nail on the head that ADUs are a thing you see in affluent neighborhoods where affluent homeowners, you know, build something that's really attractive and kind of quirky and whatever, but it's like not an accessible thing for a lot of people. My dream is that you see working class neighborhoods where you have working class homeowners who are, are cash poor and could really use a rental income stream. And in a neighborhood where maybe there's a shortage of affordable housing, smaller homes, decent quality homes, like I want ADUs to be the dream for that kind of place. And like this feels like a big piece of that puzzle. Yeah. Well, I think we can leave it there. But before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we've been up to these days, anything we've been watching, reading, listening to, etc. Uh, so Daniel, what have you been up to? 
this this is what I'm going to be up to actually in a couple weeks. Um, we are taking our kids to Disney for the first time, and they're both sleeping right now. They don't know anything about this. We've been relaxing the no TV rule a little bit for the two-year-old to introduce her to a few characters that she might uh, want to be excited about. Um, but yeah, my, my in-laws are coming down at the beginning of July, and we're going to go to Disney World, and it's going to be a, a milestone. Uh, that sounds like so much fun. I'm actually going to St. Louis this weekend, and... Unfortunately, I'm getting my hair done and I'm going to miss uh, an opportunity to go to Six Flags, <laughs> which is the amusement park that we went to growing up. Um, not, I wouldn't say often, but several times. Uh, so unfortunately, I'll miss that. But I do feel like I need to go to an amusement park soon. It's been a really long time. <laughs> I don't know if this will be relatable to you at all. Um, but recently I watched, um, House of Gucci, which was a movie that was released, I think in 2021 it was, I don't remember. I remember seeing the trailers and then forgetting about it. And then my Amazon, uh, recommended I watch it and I thought it was so good. I personally am not like a huge Lady Gaga fan you know, nothing personal. I just never really listened to her music, but she was the main actress in it and she did a really good job. I didn't really know that she could act. Um, it also had this actor in it that was, so Jeremy Irons, Irons, do you know who that is? Yeah. He voiced Scar in The Lion King. Every Does millennial he? knows. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. <laughs> so he was in a movie that I watched recently called um, Margin Call. And after I watched Margin Call, I was like obsessed with that character just because I thought it was the most interesting character in the entire movie. And I just am really compelled by, by the way he speaks as an actor, I guess. And so when I was watching this, I was, he looks totally different and he's using an Italian accent. Um, <laughs> and I, 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 I like couldn't put my finger on who it was and it was Jeremy Irons. And so I'm, uh, now on a mission to find out other movies that he's in and putting them on my list to watch because the, I, apparently he's a very popular actor that I just really didn't know much about. So he's one of those captivating presences. Yes, very captivating, mm. very interesting as an actor and playing different characters. I just, I don't know why, but I'm very compelled by by his acting, so. All right. Well, Daniel, thank you very much once again for joining me today. Good talk. Always a pleasure, Abby. You have a good weekend. Thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel.